Here we go. It's Monday night. Just a hair past 7 o'clock, and it's time for Iron Sports. True Oldies Channel, I'm Mike Balsamo. Going to be a great show for you. And unfortunately for me, Ira not in the studio. I believe he's going to be back next week. But you've been doing a little bit of jet setting this week, Ira. Living the good life. Where are you at? I'm in Orange County. Um, we had Shahei Otani's uh, Jeff Fletcher, who did an article about the other day and uh, last week. And now I'm like right near the stadium with Anaheim Stadium. So I could actually go see Joey Tani this week. I could see the Dodgers this week. But I was in this morning, woke up in New Jersey and Cape May. And now I'm here in uh, Orange County, California. And I believe you've got some plans while you're there. <laughs> yes, certainly. Hopefully, hopefully Dodgers and a Dodger game or an Angels game this week. And uh, we have a great guest coming on. He's been on before. And a lot of people might not know the name Tim Frank, Ira, but he's very important when it comes to the world of sports. Yeah, Tim is from my hometown, Altoona, Pennsylvania. He's worked with the NBA for 22 years. He's the head of uh, communications and operations with the NBA. He is very much like third in command. You might see Adam Silver. You might see Assistant Commissioner Mark Tatum. He's probably right next to that in the totem pole of who's running the NBA. And it's great. I mean, to get him to do a 30-minute interview today, it's going to be awesome to have him on the show. Uh, we have had him on before. So many questions to ask about what's going on in the NBA and those things. And it's great to have someone at this level because you're not going to get, you know, Adam Silver's not going to sit down and do a 30-minute interview with anybody. <laughs> so I'm really, really pleased that Tim's going to come on and talk to us about the league. Yeah. And that'll be right around uh, 725 p.m. here on Ira on Sports. Don't forget, follow Ira all across the country. Instagram, Ira, has been blowing up. You know, thousands of new uh, thousands of new followers every week. So make sure you check out Ira all across social media at Ira on Sports. Okay, Ira, it was kind of I, – I don't – I can't recall a trade deadline in the MLB as hectic and crazy as the one we saw last week. But it was all hinging on one cornerstone. One big move had to happen before everything else fell into place, and that was Juan Soto being moved. He's now a San Diego Padre. Shocked by it. You saw, when we left the air on last Monday, I didn't think he was going to be traded. I thought out the Lerner family uh, was going to keep him as a Washington National when they sold the team and looked to sell the team. But for some reason, they, the, the Padres have built, they have an A.J. Prello, their general manager, has done a phenomenal job building up this great farm system. And they had a group of prospects, five actually, that, uh, that uh, the Nationals wanted, and the Nationals made that trade. Remember, Soto was under contract for the next, this end of this year, in two more years. And I was just beyond shocked with this trade about going to the Padres. I, you, know, you heard of them in the running for it, but they remember, they already have Fernando Tatis Jr., who they're committing $354 million to. And they have Manny Machado committed $300 million to. They're going to have to commit maybe $500 million to Soto. I just didn't think it was going to happen. But, wow, for a team like, you know, someone's in San Diego, I wouldn't say it's small market, but it certainly is a big market. And back in 2017, the payroll was $69 million. Now, 2022, it's been $211 million. But this is a team that is not known. We talk about spending money. San Diego is not really that team, but they are in. They are the, they're the book boys now. They're with the Dodgers and the Yankees and that level. No, they, they certainly are. And you talked about the prospects, and I'm someone who follows uh, minor league baseball intently. You know, I know these guys as they're coming up. There was no deal, I were even close to as good as what San Diego put on the table. They got this could be, you know, three or four potential all-stars for the Nationals in two or three years. I can't say it was a bad deal. I mean, I saw what the Yankees were, were willing to offer. It was nothing compared to this. So I think they did pretty good here in their return, you know, in in the Nationals defense. But this is also a great case as you said because 
everyone talks about how oh, small markets can't compete. Well, they have the money. They choose not to spend it. And that's what we're seeing with a lot of teams. People people call Toronto a small market baseball team. It, they're, they're, they're owned by the biggest telecommunication company in Canada. They, they just choose not to spend money on big free agents, whereas San Diego said, we don't care. We want to win, and this is what we're going to do. Well, Peter Seidler is the owner. Um, he took over the. He bought it with Ron Fowler, who is the number one beer distributor of Coors and Miller Lite in the country. They bought it in 2012, and then two years ago, he took over full ownership of the team. He's the grandson of Walter O'Malley. Walter O'Malley was the owner of the used to be the owner of the Dodgers, so he has baseball in his blood per se. The 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 Padres have built this over the years. I got to get the AJ probably like, team credit. They've let the GM now been in place for eight years. 2017, they signed Will Meyer, six years, $83 million. 2018, they bring Darvish in. You Darvish, a pitcher, six years, $126 million. Then in 2019, they gave Machado that big contract, 10-year, 300. And when they signed him, I, I heard Preller say, we probably signed him a year too early. We're not there yet, but we would rather have him under contract. And then they have Tatis Jr. He's 23 years old now. They signed him to a 14-year $340 million contract. The good thing about Tatis is that he's only owed $6 million this year, $8 million next year, eleven twenty. Then it goes to the $30, $40, 50000000 million level. And now Soto is going to be at $17 million this year and then two arbitration years. But also, remember, they traded for Josh Hader. They just signed uh, Joe Musgrove, their pitcher, five years, $100 million contract. Like, they are really going for it. I mean, this is a team that now they go into the, the Dodgers this weekend and get swept. But, I mean, they don't have to tease. They're just getting ready. But this is definitely a team that is – they put together a very, very nice team. And, you know, they are still I, – I, geez, it's got to be 14 games out of first place in the division. But that doesn't mean they're not alive in the wild card. And there's not going to be any team – American League or National, that wants to see this team at 100% in the playoffs. They're looking, you know, the Dodgers could be the number one overall seed, then have to play San Diego and, and Atlanta. <laughs> you know, the, the reigning champs and now, the you know, the best team in the league on paper. This really shook up the landscape of the National League. It also, and it also, it, I don't know, you know, in some ways, I hate to say it, is could baseball be that happy about it? Because now you have these, all the stars are the Dodgers. You have Angels, have Otani and Trout. Now, San Diego has these two, I mean, the two 23-year-old players, Tatis and Soto, and then you have Machado. These are games that start at 10 o'clock at night, and it's not like, you know, they had to talk about baseball. People weren't staying up till 1 in the morning watching regular season baseball games. So, again, some of these players that go over there, the rest of the country doesn't see so much. I don't know if baseball wants all their great talent in the West Coast playing at midnight. You're right about that. And actually, uh, my New York Yankees have their first West Coast road trip of the season tonight. I'm looking forward to starting watching baseball at 10 p.m. But let's talk about those Yankees, Ira. Man, talk about a tale of two halves. I I know we're just, you know, slightly into the uh, post-All-Star season, but really not looking good for the New York Yankees. And their big, you know, deadline acquisition, Frankie Montas from the A's, really didn't look good in his first start. Well, I mean, could a a trade – Jim Bowden went on – uh, Bad Dog Radio 82, and he was saying the Yankees, Cashman, the genius, all this other stuff, they're great. The, every move they made is great. They're brilliant. They'd have to give enough, a lot to get Montas. And they had to give up more to get Castile. They felt getting rid of Jordan Montgomery was brilliant, and but nothing has worked. I mean, it, it, from the initial returns, it's a disaster. And Montas, again, he's pitched in front of Oakland in front of 2,000 fans a game. He's pitching in Yankee Stadium in front of 45,000. It's a huge difference. And then they trade Jordan Montgomery to the Cardinals for a backup center fielder. 
he had 30 starts last year with 383 ERA, 21 starts this year, 369. He's a left-hander. He was crying when he was traded. Like, you almost want – like, you cannot have too much pitching. You can have too much left-handed pitching. And I just – I mean, you have to question that. Montas, 2021, 30 – you know, he had 32 starts, 337 ERA. And this year he's 4-9 with 318 ERA. I just don't know it. You know, again, Montgomery has pitched. He pitched at the game I saw at City Field. He's pitched at Yankee Stadium now for two years. Montas is pitching in front of nobody. I mean, there, there are there are single A pitchers that pitch in front of more people than Frankie Montas. <laughs> and then he's like, the first game he gets shelled for six runs in a couple innings, and it's like, oh, I didn't really have my stuff. I wasn't ready. Well, there's going to be a lot of pressure. And if, and you know, in Yankees, if you start, if you get off to this bad start, um, like AJ Burnett, you know, you're gonna it's gonna it's just totally snowball. Fans are gonna get on him, and then what's gonna happen? The fans are brutal, as you said. I don't think anyone cares in Oakland. You know, whether you're pitching good. Or bad. The Montgomery trade Ira throughout the Yankees fan base really did not go over well. And you you kind of get it from Cashin's point of view. Uh, Harrison Bader is arguably the best defensive center fielder in the league. So that's the thought process here that, you know, they went from 28th in defense in the league to first in defense in the league just by making a couple of small things. Center field is still an issue, and this guy is an amazing center fielder. But, yeah, to give up after the, the start that uh, Jordan Montgomery just had the other day against the Yankees, his ERA is lower than Garrett Coles. Maybe that shouldn't have been the guy you're giving up, especially when you have players like Miguel Andujar and Esteban Floriel who are sitting in AAA doing nothing and they could be starting for your defense. So I, I'm not sure that I love these moves. And you mentioned that Jackie Bradley Jr. was available, a great defensive center fielder. They could have brought him on instead of ha- – and, 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 and Har- the, the St. Louis center fielder has plantar fasciitis and can't even play for a month. So I, there, there's just – I mean, I just – again, I just – there's question, questioning these moves that the Yankees make, but it all comes down to the fact that they're overvaluing their pitching. Suddenly, uh, Talion, their, their third starter, he's get, his ERA is ballooning up. And, and you have Ger- and Garrett Cole. I mean, they view Garrett Cole as an ace. And then you watch Scherzer pitch. Scherzer's an ace. Like, that's why the Dodgers should have kept Scherzer. Like, but, but the Yankees, they should have Scherzer, not Garrett Cole. So, I mean, I have a friend, uh, Rob, in Vegas. And, you know, it's so funny that people out in the West Coast, the other way around, I have a lot of Yankee fans that, like, who live out in L.A., in Vegas, whatever. They watch all the Yankees. They're, those games are on at 4 o'clock. Like, they put it around their dinner time. They're <laughs> watching every game. And he is the Mr. anti uh, he, he's been against Garrett Cole from day one. He's he just he's so against him. And they're like, why did we not get Scherzer? And you see moves like this, and the Yankees keep thinking Cole was the number one starter, and he really isn't. He's probably like a two or a three, and, and Scherzer's pitching great now for the Mets. Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo uh, from the NBA front office. Tim Frank joins us in about uh, 12, 13 minutes. Um, no, t- totally right. I mean, it, it's just looking. The, the Mets just played the Yankees, and we'll talk about the Mets in a second. And they won the game because Max Scherzer was lights out for seven innings. And who do you think you're going to be facing off in the playoffs? Max Scherzer's. It's going to be Justin Verlander's. The guys who can shut people down. And if you're a team like the Mets, who has two of those guys, that that's six of seven games in, in a seven-game series. Good luck if you're the Yankees and you're having guys like Jameis and Tyone get rocked for five five runs in the first three innings out there. It's going to be a long uh, long end of the season here for the Yankees. We'll see what happens. It's not like they're going to lose first place or anything, but I could definitely see an early exit. Let's talk about those Mets, though, Ira. They've been the opposite <laughs> since the All-Star break. They've been really good, and the Braves kind of put them in, themselves in a position to make a move in a series here, and they ended up getting crushed by the Mets. Go over the Braves. Well, a couple things to think about. Last year on this date, the Braves, who won the World Series last year, 
were only one game over 500. So as much as we talk about where people are, what they're at, they were only one game over 500. I go back two years ago, Pat, uh, before the pandemic, the Nationals, I think they were yeah. below 500. They were, yeah. So the fact that it just shows you, you know, you can't just write everything in stone now. But the, the Mets had that big lead. They lost their lead. It was down to one and a half games. And now after winning four to five against Atlanta this weekend, uh, it's back to six and a half. And on Thursday night, I mean, I think one of the things you have to keep looking for is Diaz, their closer, who last year everybody wanted to get out of town. is just so lights out. I guess he's pitched. It's, it's 45 innings, and he has 90 strikeouts. He's averaging two strikeouts inning, and he had a two outs, a two, a six outs, a six out save on Thursday night. Came in the eighth inning, and 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 that's where I think Buck Showalter, like this team, people keep saying they need a professional manager, and Buck Showalter has done that. This is a totally different Mets team that we've seen. I mean, they're and and Showalter is such. I mean, knowing he sensed that when he brought Diaz, remember in the Yankee series in the eighth inning with one out, with two outs in the eighth inning, just to give him an extra, just to get that out out in that in the eighth inning. And then on Thursday night, sensing how important this game is, 6-4, you know, you've got to close this out. Rain Diaz in for the two-out save. Now they lost Friday night, but they came back and won Saturday. Scherzer, seven innings, no runs. He pitched 11 strikeouts, 108 pitches. And then Sunday to come back with DeGrom for five and two-thirds of an inning, 12 strikeouts. They had 19 strikeouts on Sunday, and they got another save from Diaz, three Ks in a row for his 26 save. Alfonso for the series. Eight for 19, one home run, seven RBIs, had to hit each game and a couple strikeouts. That's all he did. They have done, you know, all the problems that the Mets have, getting from their starters to, to Diaz, the back end of their lineup. But, boy, they went against the Braves and won four out of five. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people wouldn't realize, if you're not a huge baseball fan or if you're not in the New York area, you may not realize what you said about uh, Edwin Diaz. He's having a historic season. I mean, Mariano Rivera is the greatest closer of all time. If he keeps this up, this might be the best season of all time. He's phenomenal. Got to check him out. So we're more than halfway through the season, Ira. Where would you post some awards? Because I know that South Florida, a lot of people in Florida don't realize we've got a baseball team here, and they got one of the best playing for them. Well, Alicantra, the starting pitcher, is, I think the Cy Young is over. I mean, I think the Alicantra will win it, 188 ERA, 10-4 uh, record uh, for the Marlins. And then Verlander uh, in the 15-3 record, 173 ERA. Remember, Verlander, 39 years old, he was 5-0 and for Houston. It was 69-21-6. and Then he hurt his elbow without 20-21, and almost two years, pitched one game in two years, came back, and is having this just amazing year at 39 years old. But I looked at the odds. I mean, they're by far the two favorites. It'd be shocking that if, if both, I mean, both of them should clearly win the Cy Young this year. Any other uh, awards that you're uh, looking at? Well, I think for the LMVP, this is going to be the one that everyone's going to talk about. Aaron Judge is having a historic season, hitting 300, 43 home runs, 97 RBIs. But Otani is like in the running for the Cy Young Award, and he has 24 home runs, 65 RBIs. I look at the odds, it's so funny. Judge is like, a favorite, slight favorite. Otani is like three, uh, you know, three and a half to one against Otani. So judges leading Otani right now. The next favorite is Jordan Alvarez, fifty to one. So I mean, clearly, <laughs> it's either going to be Judge or Otani. And, and and how much are they going? Weight are they going to give to Otani because he pitches and he hits? He's pitching better. This is probably the best year he's ever had pitching. And his hitting is not what, what it was last year, but he's still going to finish with over like thirty-five home runs, maybe eighty, ninety RBIs. So that's going to be a tough call because Judge is going to have this historic season. The National League, it could go anyway. I mean, Goldschmidt, I, I'm surprised at the odds. Alfonso is at 12-1, to 1, 
with the year he's having, how the Mets are playing, 29 home runs, 95 RBIs, I think he's going to be in the mix when this is over. Um, but you have Goldschmidt as the favorite, and, and Arenado, his teammate, is also one of the top favorites with Austin Riley for the Braves, Freeman for the Dodgers. But I think it's still up in the air for the now. That's the one race that I think is very that a lot of players would have a chance for the National League MVP. Yeah, and it's funny you talk about a resurgence of Justin Verlander. Same thing with Paul Goldschmidt. I mean, <laughs> he's getting up there in age and, and having you know one of his best seasons of his career. So it's been a rough two weeks, Ira. Lost Bill Russell last week, and then we had the passing of Vince Scully this past weekend. I'm not sure that there's a single entity that hasn't physically touched the field that's affected the game more than Vince Scully. You know, the one thing about Vince Scully is that to think that he was the youngest person ever to broadcast a World Series game. Now, and, you know, we have young broadcasters now all the time, but he did that in the 50s. And he, co- and he broadcast games for 67 years. I mean, it's just thinking to think how, and not only did he broadcast for 67, when he, when he retired in 2016, he was the best broadcaster in the game. Like, he retired on top. It, 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 listening to Vince Scully broadcast a baseball game, and he didn't use it. It's not like how when you watch Susan Wallman and, Wallman and John Sterling for the Yankees. Like, they're, they're reading ads <laughs> and they're going back and forth. He didn't have anybody in his room. He was all by himself broadcasting these games, and that's how he liked it. That's how the Dodgers did it. And his ability just to tell the game, baseball is a great sport to listen to on the radio, and he just painted the picture with his words perfectly. Uh, he, was, he did football, too. I mean, he did he – he, actually, I was reading about him. On the, he worked for CBS, and they put it with, with uh, John Madden, and he was going to be – it was either Pat Summerall or Vince Scully was going to do the number one football. He was the number two announcer. They were debating, and they ended up putting Summerall – they did it half the season. They said Summerall works better with Madden. Otherwise, other way, um, Scully would have been the, the maybe you know, team with Madden all these years like Summerall. We might have known him more for football than for baseball. But he broadcast the Masters, golf tournaments, and uh, even the football. One football game, the Cats, the, uh, uh, the one with Joe Montana, Dwight Clark where San Francisco 49ers beat the Cowboys, he broadcast that game. So, and also the uh, game when Hank Aaron broke the record, Babe Ruth's record. I was in L.A. in 2017, game two of the World Series, when he, they were saying, oh, you should come back and broadcast it. Come back. He said, I'm not going to come back. I retired. He stayed retired. But he came back on game two and went out to throw the first pitch out. And he goes, I'm not going to throw this first pitch. I'm going to give it to the, one of the best pitchers I've ever seen, Fernando Valenzuela, and called Valenzuela out for the bullpen, per se, and had him come out and throw the pitch. And just class personified. He's been, you know, since he passed away a few days ago, everyone's made comments. Everything is positive. He helped everybody in the industry, in the radio industry. He would take the, the person who's just breaking in. He was not full of himself. I mean, he's just one of the greatest. He's like a great man, a great broadcaster, and it's a, he lived a full life until 96 years old. But just a, it's, it's terrible to see him go because he was, and I guess being in L.A., they sense it. I mean, there's people who have listened to him broadcast these games for like 50 years, every game, not every game, but because he, he took some games off. But it's going to be, it's certainly a void in, in out here in LA and also all throughout baseball. Let's wrap up uh, baseball here on Ira on Sports. Where are we at standings wise? Because some divisions are a lot tighter than others. Well, I think really what people have to remember you got to get the first and second seed. And right now, the Mets, what they did with it to the Braves, the Dodgers made it clear. They're up 16 now. They swept the Padres this weekend. The Mets and the Dodgers are going to get the one and two seeds. And that literally leaves five teams with four spots. The Phillies have won nine in a row. 
I'm in Cape May, New Jersey this weekend, and everyone's talking the Phillies. They're excited for the Phillies. They're ready to go. The Phillies, the Braves, the Padres are all like in that mix for one of the wild card games, and the Cards and Brewers are also there. So it's really those five teams for four spots. But it's the one and two seeds. I mean, I got to think that you know that's what you want to be because if you're the Mets and you can rest Scherzer and Degrom that opening series and then use them for the National League Championship Series, I mean that would be the first the five game series. That's what you would hope for, that you would be able to use them in that first-round games and not, uh, not in the wild-card round. In the American League, the Yankees and Astros cruising along first and second. The wild-card, seven teams or four spots. It could be anybody, Minnesota, Cleveland, White Sox, Jays, the Tampa, Seattle, Baltimore. It's anybody's guess. But I'll tell you what, if it's not the Yankees or Astros in the American League Championship Series, I'd be shocked. These are two of the two best teams in the American League by far. Yeah, I mean, I, I, fingers crossed, but it, it, it does seem like that's uh, going to be the way it goes. It's 721. This is Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Just about uh, three, four minutes till we get to Tim Frank from the NBA front office. But everyone's talking about it, Ira, so we might as well chime in as well. What a disaster this Deshaun Watson case has turned into for the NFL. Um, you know, they, they hire an independent, uh, independent judge to give a ruling Goodell basically says, I don't agree with this, and throws it out. Where are we now in this saga that seems to never end? Well, he now he could appeal it to himself. He could have ruled. People thought that he was going to let uh, Sarah Robinson's decision stand because it's a new way. This is a collectively bargain. But he decided to, he said six games, they want a year. They, do, they definitely want a year. Now they've appealed it. He didn't, he's not going to rule, and he put it to a New Jersey, New Jersey attorney general who's going to analyze the record or whatever. I don't think it's going to be a year now. I think it's going to be eight games. I think it's going to get – I think he'll probably increase it to eight. And the question is, will Deshaun Watson appeal it then? I don't think so. I think he's probably going to be – I still think it's going to be probably about that eight-game level. And what's happening here with the Miami Dolphins? It's been all the talk on you know local radio here. You haven't been here, so catch us up if we're not familiar with what, what just happened with the Dolphins. Well, I – well, of course, this is part of the Brian Flores lawsuit against Stephen Ross. And I'd like to bring some people in to go more in detail about all these other the legal aspects of it. But the NFL investigated Stephen Ross and found out that, well, he told Flores that he'd pay him to lose, but that was the joke. No one took it seriously. So he's not going to get in trouble for tanking, which would have been horrendous. You know, if he was actually doing something to tank, then that would be really bad. But they said they came out of nowhere with the Brady. We heard about rumors about this. But the tampering allegations with Tom Brady, when Tom Brady not only was with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but with the New England Patriots and Sean Payton, the coach of the New Orleans Saints. So he was trying to put Brady and Payton together on the team, Brady in some sort of ownership role or whatever. I, supposedly they met on a boat. They, Brady and Payton are represented by Dan Yee, who is an agent who represents both of them. Uh, again, I think this is a lot to do over nothing. We know that tampering goes on all the time. How else, when you have the NFL, people are saying this is the worst thing they've ever seen, this is terrible. When the NBA or the NFL trade uh, free agent deadline starts, the moment it's like turns 1201, people are signing multi million dollar contracts. Like, you can't buy a car in that short period of time, but suddenly they're signing $100 million contract. Of course they've been, they've been negotiating. Of course there's tampering that goes on. Of course everybody's talking to everybody. They all talk about stuff. I think, it's, I think really they, the league felt like they needed to tell Ross, look, we don't like how you handled the floor situation. We don't like what you said to him, but we don't want to go in the whole tanking aspect of it. Uh, now we have tampering too, so we're going to suspend you the first six games. 
$1.5 million fine, and the Finns lose their first pick in the next year's draft, which is similar to what the Patriots lost on the deflated football thing with uh, Brady. So that's where that, that they took the first-round pick away and the third round the next year. So, Ira, it wasn't the most exciting game ever, but the NFL preseason is underway. We saw the Hall of Fame game. I'm going to say one thing from the game about the Raiders killing the Jaguars. Jared Stidham. It did not look like Jared Stidham. Remember, Jared Stidham was playing for the Patriots. The back quarterback looked terrible. He looked great in the game. Now, I, I mean, I know starters were Walker played for the Jaguars, who was the number one pick in the draft, which was surprised everybody had a sack look great on that play. But I couldn't believe how well Jared Stidham <laughs> I was in shock. Like, it just shows you that, I mean, he looked like, for a second, I, I didn't have the sound of the game on. I was at a bar. I'm like, is that Derek Carr out there? Because he looked like Derek Carr. I saw Stidham move, and I guess it just shows you that some of these players that are talented, they can work and go, and, and they, can, they can get better. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo was a backup for Brady all these years, and I guess working in that system in New England, you're, you are developing skills, and what a great pickup for the Raiders to have Stidham as one of their backup quarterbacks. Yeah, and, and getting him back with... um with the new head coach, McDaniel. So, you know, kind of, they knew each other. It's who he wanted. He felt comfortable with him. And if something does happen to Derek Carr, maybe they'll be in good hands. So before this week, I, I, I don't even know how to, is, is it ayahuasca? Is this the, the the strange drug that Aaron Rodgers is crediting with uh, getting him back to MVP level? Aaron Rodgers is crazy. I mean, he went on that interview, and I don't think I've ever heard I can't imagine anyone having an interview like that. I mean, I remember Ricky Williams when he was on Weed uh, Dolphins doing it, did an interview like that. But that has to be the craziest interview. And he talked about how he's on psychedelics and he uses that and that's what he has. But I'm thinking they, maybe they have to adjust it. Maybe when the Packers you know, have the week off after they clinch it, maybe he should go back down and went to Peru because he's not been playing well in the playoffs. So all this psychedelic stuff must wear off at the end of the year for the playoffs. It doesn't work. But it is pretty crazy when he goes. And, and I mean, then someone said, I don't know, is that performance enhancing? Is that even allowed? <laughs> like the stuff that he has. And I mean, it was, I mean, to think that he's the two time MVP of the league, back to back MVP, and he's talking about these drugs that he's taking in Peru in the jungle and he doesn't even know where he is for five days. Uh, The good thing is I just don't think other pro athletes are going to follow this method. Like, it's not something that they're going to just say, let's all go to Peru and live in a jungle and and do with the psychedelics. Yeah, the the New York Giants go to the banana boat in Miami and they lose and Aaron Rodgers goes to Peru and does uh, (laughs) ayahuasca and he, you know, gets better. Crazy stuff. Before we get to Tim Frank, what happened with Kevin Durant today? I'm getting to the point now where I can't stand this guy. Well, he just supposedly he called the owner yesterday, and I and I and because there hasn't been anything happening for three weeks, and he said, "Oh, I'll, I'll come back, I'll play, but you got to fire the coach, Steve Nash." Of course, he's the coach that he wanted, so mm-hmm. the, they fired uh, Kenny Atkinson, who was doing a great job as coach for Steve Nash, who that's who Kevin Durant wanted, but now he wants Nash fired. He wants the general manager Sean Marks fired, who I have to say, Sean Marks has done everything. It seems like he is finding players all the time, all these players that he's found and developed and, and whatever, and he's found Kenny. I mean, he's done a great – of all the – you want to fire Nash. I can believe that. I mean, I think it's – but 
Kevin Durant should be honest and say, look, I want Steve to be the coach. He's not good. I take responsibility or some sort of responsibility. But son, Marks has just done everything but found everybody from uh, Spencer Didwitty, I get Nicholas Claxton, Joe Harris. He's finding guys out of nowhere, out of scrappy. He's like the Miami Heat type of general manager and turning them into stars. He put this team together with Durant and Irving and whatever. But, I mean, he doesn't deserve to get fired. But who knows knows what's going to happen? But I'll tell you what. I mean, it's like to come out – this strong and say, look, I'll come back, but you got to fire the coach and general manager. Usually the players like, you know, Magic Johnson had Westhead fired, who's had on our show, but he sort of denied it, denied it, denied it. Rarely do you have a player saying, yeah, this is what I want. Now he did, you know, it's been leaked, so he didn't say it personally, but the fact is, wow, it's pretty amazing that uh, Durant, not 33 years old, I almost think they should just say, okay, Kevin, you can do it. You know, we're going to keep you, Kyrie and Simmons, and you can pick what, why don't you be the player coach and do what you want? Let's get to Tim Frank, Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports. Uh, we're pleased to have the Senior Vice President of League Operations and Communications, Tim Frank, on the line to talk about the NBA. Thanks a lot, Tim, for coming in. You've done this a couple times before in the summer, but it's great to be talking about the NBA in, in July and August. Yeah, happy to be here, Ira. How's everything going? Everything's going great in South Florida. We, uh, you know, we had a nice little run there with the Miami Heat. <laughs> so it was great. I was going to all the playoff games. Very exciting. You know, one game away from the NBA Finals, but uh, certainly not since the uh, LeBron days have we had this uh, intensity. And it was really good to be there in South Florida, in South Florida, for the Miami Heat making it to the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, they almost pulled it out. I mean, you know, they were down the majority of that game, but. You know, I mean, one Jimmy Butler three away from maybe maybe advancing, but uh, uh, you know they're the Heat. They're always going to be there. You know, I mean, you know, it was during the bubble year they obviously made the finals. Um, you know, it's uh, they, they do things the right way, and and they're always going to be competing in one form or fashion. So I guess in the NBA you've had the COVID year, which was a normal year, but then certainly the playoffs were anything but normal. Last year, the late started. I was thinking around this time last year, I was going to my friend's party. I'm like, wow, I was going to your party, and it was like there were NBA finals on, and I didn't really want to go to someone's party because I wanted to watch not the finals, but actually just the middle of the playoffs. So this is a little bit, did we get, get back to, we had a short, short summer last year, short break, but you got back to a normal season this year. You got to be happy with how the season played out, uh, being back to the regular schedule. Yeah, you know, it's really nice to have, um, to, to be back in a normal routine you know we were at the owners meetings a couple weeks ago and i said to one of the media members it was crazy to think about it but that day was the two-year anniversary of when the media arrived in the bubble and we had you know so in over a two-year period we have you know we crowned three champions um you know which is just nuts to think about and so so to hit the off season this year in a normal way have the draft have free agency um, summer league, all of that on a normal schedule. I think it's better for everybody. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get some guys really well rested going into the season. Um, so I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was a hard three years, but hopefully we're coming out on the backside of it now. You have to be happy with how the league looks like in terms of every market. Like 
teams that there are just a few markets where I say, well, there's no stars in the market. There are some teams that did make the playoffs, like, say, the Wizards, but they have Bradley Beal, who's back. And you have Cleveland, you know, they're excited because of Darius Garland. Like, it's almost like everybody, it almost has an NFL-type feel as opposed to baseball, where even if teams are saying, well, I don't know if we're going to win the title, but we're really good and a player here or there can make a difference, you got to be happy that all these other markets, you know, that, we're, that you're strong and so many markets are at least strong in terms of the teams having hope and it's not just going to be a lost season. We're getting there. I mean, I, I think we felt really good with this season, with the number of, with the depth of talent um, across the league, and and I, I think um, you know it can always be better, and I and I think we'll we'll, we'll hope that it, it does you know continue to spread out and continue to for teams to get stronger and stronger um, you know throughout the league. Uh, but this year was fun. I mean, like it was really an unpredictability. Um, you know that that we haven't seen really in a long time, and and I and I think um, some of these younger teams that are coming up are only going to make it more and more exciting. And so, so yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I, I I think you know it's not too common where a team is a 12 seed, uh, you know, two months in and ends up going to the finals like the Celtics did, right? It's it's not super common that the um, that a, a team like the Warriors from the three seed. Um, end up getting home court in the finals, so like it's 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 getting there, and we're we think every year um, we get a little bit closer to to that sort of level that we want to be at. But um, but last year was really a fun example of it. And then to have your two top the seeds, not seeds, but the favorites of the going into the season, the Lakers, the Nets. You know, everyone said, oh, it's going to be clearly they're in the finals, no doubt about it. LeBron, Durant, that's going to happen. And when they both have just bad years and other teams come up, it just takes away this uncertainty. That people say, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen every year in the league. They don't even need to play the season. But clearly you did need because the Celtics in the middle of the year, as you said, were struggling, looked like they could barely make the playoffs, and they end up you know, getting to the, getting the NBA finals. Yeah, I mean, listen, that's all you want, right? You you want to give every team the opportunity to, to, to have a chance to compete. And 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 I think you know that's what our goal is every single year. And 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 you know some of our uh, these teams have really really drafted incredibly. I mean Memphis is a great example, right, of how how well they have done um, with Zach Kleiman as their general manager. And 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 you know they're going to be scary here now for a while. Um, you know I think you saw at the end of the la- last season. You know I mean Zion Williamson wasn't even playing, but the Pelicans made a heck of a run in the second half of the year. Ended up you know getting into the playoffs, gave the Suns a little bit of a a push there in the first round, at, at, you know, when they were the eight seed. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's um, any unpredictability is great in sports. I mean, it's it's you don't want to show up and, and think you know the answers to the test, right? You wanna you want to be able to have um, um, a real free competition and, and, and excitement that surrounds it. And and you know, we had that this year, and I think we're really optimistic that you know that that's the era we're in right now. I don't know. When I took tests, I did like to know the answers. <laughs> but um, anyway, you know, one thing is, I we talked to, I had Marshall John Fisher on who talked about the 72 Dolphins and went through about how games were blacked out. And it was a whole battle of the NFL. Should we put games on television? Should we not put games on television? You, as director of League Operations Communications, you have a challenge because you want to get people engaged in social media. Every time someone looks at a Zion Williamson dunk or, or a great shot, a Steph Curry shot, that's great for you on social media. Then you have the television aspect, which, you, which is important. And then you want to get people to go to the games. You just want people sitting at their home on their smartphones, checking out highlights. So it is a challenge now, more than in years past, in terms of we want the stadiums full, we also want people watching on TV, and we want the engagement on social media. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's like you want your cake and eat it too, right? I mean, you know, I mean, we we certainly want all of those things, and and right now I think we feel pretty good about it. You know, I mean, from a rating standpoint, we had a really solid year. The um, the attendance was in a good shape, so. Um, what you know, you got to focus on all the different aspects of that. You, you, we need to continue to make the in arena experience one that people want to be a part of, right? And and if they aren't able to come to the game, then the TV is a is a great option for them to be able to enjoy it or you know be able to engage in, in things on social media at either place. But yeah, no, I mean, I think for us, like you you got to focus on each experience and make it a world class experience so that each is its own special. Um, place for people to go, and um, and that's a challenge for all leagues. Is is how do you how do you make it special? And I think I think that's that's what we wake up every day and 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 try to make happen. And um, you know, at the moment, I think we feel like we're in a pretty good position in that. But um, but you know, you always got to stay on top of it because there's new uh, advances in technology. There's new advances in how people consume products. Um, and you just got to make sure you're on top of that all those transitions so that you can take advantage of it. I've been to about 25 of the arenas, the 29 arenas of the NBA, and, and it just shocked every time I just you know go to the arenas, go to the VIP sections. Not, when I say VIP, they're not VIP. There's so many different uh, clubs and everything in, in the in the Miami arena. There's like seven or different different places. I wouldn't even call them VIP because it's like everybody can go in one. I think that adds so much experience. You have people in Miami staying after the game, hours after the game. They're getting there early, which is great too. The only thing I'd like to see a little bit is. Sometimes, like in the playoffs, like at halftime, you know, when they come back around time, and this has the end, that's always the same problem. Like there's nobody in the seats, and that I wish mm-hmm. there was some way to, to eliminate that. But, but it is um, great to see these arenas. You see Philadelphia talked about a new arena, about what they're able to create as more of a destination. People are there before the game and after the game. Yeah, it's all about the experience. You know, I mean, you know, when I go to a football game or I go to a baseball game, like you – you, you want to be able to um, have a reason you're there and not just be it's the same thing as you get when you're on te- you know watching on television and you know as a it's funny I always relate this to you know I'm a Notre Dame grad and people complain about putting a jumbotron in Notre Dame Stadium well I, you know I hate to say it but like you have to make the experience worth it and if people are coming to games at a football stadium or even a basketball arena and they can't see replays. Then they're not getting the same experience they could get at home. So, so like all of this matters, and and I think sometimes people, you know, traditionalists, and I frankly am a little bit of a traditionalist, but like you got to evolve, and and you got to you got to really focus on on the experience that people are going to have when they're you know when they're taking in your product, and if you start to lose sight of that, that's when you lose your fan base, and that's you know the fan base is the lifeblood of everything we do. Um, one of the things that in the playoffs. I joined the regular season in the playoffs. It seemed like there were a lot more blowouts. I mean, I know it's like going at no one ever. If someone said that Dallas was going to blow out Phoenix at home in a game seven, you're like, that'll never happen. I mean, it'll never, ever happen. It happened. Is there something? I mean, it's hard to think what the NBA could do about that, but I did notice this year there happened to be in the playoffs during the regular season some of these 20, 30, 40 point leads. I mean, I remember the joke of the NBA was I'll just turn it on to the end of the game. If you turn it on the end of the game, you probably missed, you know, that's where the, the runs in the first and second quarters. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, the truth of it was the first two rounds um, until the very end of the second round were we probably were in a better position than we have been as far as close games. However, we had a we had a really cold spell there, starting with that Dallas Phoenix game in Game Seven, and kind of carried us in the conference finals a little bit. And we didn't have a lot of close games at, at, at you know at that time. And even in the finals, 
you know, there were some good games there, but everyone ended up outside of 10. So, my, you know, my guess is it's just, it's just circumstances. You know, um, I think the three-point shot probably is a factor in that. You know, one team gets hot, one team gets cold, and the, and the delta between the two teams can, can flip pretty quick. But I, I, I don't think that's anything we're terribly concerned about. I think we thought we had a really good competitive regular season. I think the first two rounds we felt really, really good about. So I think that was just a matter of circumstances more than anything else. You heard that you hear the we talk about the three point shot and about rules. You hear the complaints about the three point shot. I mean, I have so many guests on my show. I seem to ask everybody about that, about the use and how it's being used, and whether the lines should be moved back or not moved back. Um, and is there what is the thought about the three point shot? And also another rule that was changed: the take foul uh, was eliminated. I think that you passed that. So, but is there what's the thought more on the three point shots? And and is the league happy where it is right now? Um. Listen, there's a lot of three-point shots being taken. Um, and I, is that bad? I don't think so, but it's something we have to keep monitoring, you know, and make sure that it doesn't become too one-sided. Um, and that it's, again, something that appeals to the people that are consuming your product. And as of now, it seems like the Steph Curry era has become, the three-point shot has become the must-see event, right? I mean, it's it's almost surpassed dunks now as the most exciting play in basketball. And so... Um, so I, I think we're okay. I think, but I don't like with everything else. I think we should we should keep a, a real close eye on that and monitor it and and make sure um, it's not getting too too one sided. And um, and you know the question is though, how do you solve it? Like you know, I mean, do you do you make you know? I think the corner threes probably you know it's the closest one, so more people use that. Um, you know, how do you deal with that? Th- those are the questions you ask yourself. But I don't think we're there yet. As as far as the transition take foul, uh, I think there was like a large worldwide celebration when we passed that rule. I mean, no, I mean, you know, the fun of NBA basketball, really all basketball, is the, the free flowing nature of the game. I mean, these these intentional transition take fouls were just. Um, they were, you know, they were just awful to watch. And and I think as a whole, we realized that we needed to step in and make, you know, make a heavier penalty associated with them. Um, we saw it work in the G League. Uh, we've seen it work internationally. Um, so we're super optimistic that when we when we tip off play in October, uh, that we're, we're going to see much, much less of that. And we're going to see more and more of uh, running free-flowing basketball, which I think is what we all want to see. Yeah, I got to give Jeff Van Gundy somewhat some sort of credit because during the finals you hear him saying, "Why is why are Tatum and Brown taking take fouls? I mean, you have your superstar players just throwing a foul away. You're given six fouls. If you're going to spend two of them on take fouls, you know you're going to put them in foul trouble." So he did. He was making some good points, but I, I thought teams take those what well, the quote take fouls like much too much in terms of what they were doing. Uh, yeah, Jeff. Jeff and Stan, I think, had family gatherings where they cursed out the take foul. They, they, they. Neither one of them could live with that any longer. I think we, I think we added years to their lives by, uh, by putting, uh, by putting that rule in. They're gonna be, they're gonna be happier watching the game. So you started a couple of years ago this play-in tournament. I was sort of on the fence whether I liked it or not. I did, but of course I watched it. They're exciting. It, it, it seems been the, some of the best games of the tournament have been these play-in tournaments. You allow 10 teams in, uh, the, the, the first, the, the final six then play. But you're also getting excitement that teams are trying not to get, you know, get the top five seeds so they're not actually quote in the play-in, in the play-in, in the play-in tournament or the six seeds so they're not in the play-in tournament. Now, you know, I read, I, when we first put this in, 
anybody I talked to, I tried to explain to them how that was the best part of it. Sure, the single elimination games were going to be great, right? Like, we, we were excited for those. Those were going to be fun. But the idea of creating different tiers of matter where you finish – it really was going to improve the regular season. And what we've seen is, as you know, as you mentioned, everybody's now battling to get out of that seven spot, right? They want to, they want to get up in that top six, uh, you know, and then if you're an 11, 12, 13 team, you were always out pretty, pretty much by March. Now you have a chance to get into that nine and 10 spot and potentially make the, 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 the playoffs. It now matters to you. So now more meaningful games. So, it's it's very funny. A lot of people took it initially that we were going to, by adding teams, we were going to make the regular season less meaningful. But I was really optimistic from the get-go it was going to make the regular season more meaningful. And I think that's what we've seen. And, and we're super excited about it. We've been really lucky, generally speaking, on how many good play-in games we've had during you know the last two seasons. You, know, you, you don't know if that's always going to work out, but we've had some, some really good ones. Um, but the, the general nature of how it has impacted our regular season, I think, has been league-changing, and, and I think it's the best part of it. There's been some talk about a mid-season tourney. I'm, I'm sort of a more hesitant even on this, about like having some sort of tournament in mid-season. I know you did the WNBA, but has that have any traction? Is there a way? What are you thinking about in terms of the, the mid-season tournament, which they do in other sports? Like It's not just... You know, they do it in Europe, they do it in soccer. I mean, they do it in a lot of places. It just seems a little unusual because we don't have it like in baseball or football or basketball or hockey here. I think that's the biggest problem is that people aren't used to it. And and I, and I listen, the way I look at the midseason tournament is this, is if the worst outcome of the midseason tournament is we're going to get an extra Warriors-Celtics game in December or an extra, you know, Lakers-Nets game in, in, in December, um. I think we're probably all winning there. You know, I mean, like, you know, I mean, like it's the idea is to set it up in such a way in which you in which you create a tournament setting and single elimination and have your best teams playing. And and if, you know, those games wouldn't necessarily exist otherwise, you know, some of those teams are only going to play twice a year if in the same conference three times a year. This possibly gives you additional opportunities to see the best teams play against each other. So. If that's the way it works out, I, I think everybody will ultimately come around to thinking it's a pretty good idea. The, the key is the incentives. Like you, you want it to be important to the players, the coaches, the teams um, uh, as a whole, and that's what we got to. That, that's the key to it. How do we create the right incentives? Incentives to make it matter, and when it does, I think it's something we might try. But you know, we're not quite there, but we're continuing to look at it. I have a friend, a good friend of mine, was this whole weekend was talking my ear off this idea of having a the like a Ryder Cup, big golf fan. So he says, why can't you just put the Europeans and, and you know, you can put maybe the Canadian group players in, in one group and playing against the USA because so many of these great foreign players are on it's, it's rarely do you have some countries that have all the good foreign players because Yugoslavia at one point, but now they're divided in different countries. So it's mm-hmm. hard. But if you put the best foreign players against the best American players, say a three game series, just that uh, in, in the summer, sometimes in the odd years when there's no world championship or Olympics, that might be a draw and might get some of the players to go over there and play and, and expand the, uh, the reach of the game. Yeah, I'd really heard that one before. I mean, I, like, again, it's all about incentives, right? I mean, you know, what, 
what entices people to want to play in that? What you know? What is the thing that gets fans to want to watch it? Like I, those are all the things you have to try to build. I mean, like in a in a vacuum, and you know, it sounds like it could be really kind of fun and interesting. But you know, like with anything else, we're dealing with human beings here, and we got to figure out the right way to 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 put in the right incentives to make anything work along those lines. Um, and now I always ask you the same question, and I just. We're both from Altoona, Pennsylvania. We just didn't have a team growing up. And I, you know, if there ever before I die, if a team would go to Pittsburgh, I'm, I'm a Heat fan now because I'm but <laughs> I would do anything to be a Pittsburgh, whatever they want to call it, fan for the NBA. But what is the expansion? I mean, I keep hearing the Seattle's and you keep hearing the Vegas's and it just doesn't, it's just, you hear words, but it doesn't seem like they're, you're any closer to putting some of those cities in the expansion list. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily anything that's really pending. Um, you know, I mean, obviously it's going to happen at some point. I mean, every, every league expands at some point, but you know, we started the conversation talking about, you know, how we're really reaching a a hell of a parody situation within our league. And so I think we feel good about where the league is, the number of teams, the number of players, uh, the competitive level of the games, the competitive level of each of the teams. And so, um, you know, there's not a real urgency to rush into anything like that. Do, do I think it'll happen at some point? I'm sure it will, but I don't think it's anything that's really on the horizon for right now. I mean, the good thing that you have is that these teams are have new stadiums in markets. You don't hear a lot of, oh, this team has to move. They can't stay in the market. It's not being supported in the market. Like you see in baseball, when Tampa, everyone's talking about Tampa moving, they play in front of a few thousand people, or Oakland playing in front of 2,000 people, if they get a new stadium. So I think that's a benefit you have as a league. I mean, that you actually have solid, stable 30 franchises in, in arenas that they're happy or they're building new ones. It seems that that makes it. But it, again, the, the teams, that, the cities that don't have the NBA, they, you know, they have more reason to want an NBA franchise. Well, you want to be in demand, right? I mean, <laughs> and so that's an important thing. And, and, you know, listen, there's no question if we wanted to, we could, you know, we could expand right now. Um, you know, but, you know, I think all in all, we feel like we're at a pretty good place from a balance standpoint. And, um, and um, you know, we'll keep looking at it and, you know, like I said, we might get there at some point, and, but, uh, you know, it's not something that's really on the front burner at the moment. Um, I was, was going to ask you one more thing about load management and the and the concerns yeah. with that. Uh, do you feel – there's been so much talk about load management. Uh, do you feel like that's something that is being addressed by the team? I, I guess your overall sense of, of just, just a general question about load management. You know, I think that's something when we go into collective bargaining that we'll probably have some conversations on. Um, you know, Adam has said that, and you know, in his most recent press conference in, in two weeks ago in Las Vegas, and um, uh, it's hard. Like, I mean, you know, listen, when we were growing up, like guys played hurt all the time. I'm not sure that was the smartest thing. Like when when you see Kevin McHale walking around right now, I think he'd probably tell you he probably should have taken a few games off here and there, you know. And so you don't want to put anybody in a position where they're playing hurt. You don't want to put people in a position where they're doing something that could that could end up getting them hurt. So it's a fine line, but you know, it's something that you know, I think it's, that we'll keep looking at and, and you know, trying again, trying to align the right incentives so 
there's there's importance to to play the games and and you know I, I mean the the truth of the matter is is you know it's not just a player issue I mean like sometimes the teams are you know want to be super protective on a player right and they don't want him to play even though the player says he's ready to play so um, you know it's it's a it's a sort of a wide ranging issue but we made some changes a few years ago uh, in which guys you know in certain cases you're not allowed to rest players and I think we've seen some success there um, like like with everything else people focus on the negative uh, on some of these things but I think we have made some progress in that area um, I've had the last I would say month two with Paul coach Paul Westhead with the coach of the Lakers uh, who won the title with Kareem and Magic and also last week I had Jeff Perlman who was the writer of the book Showtime I am completely obsessed with winning time. I, I watched it <laughs> three times now. I read the book now twice Showtime and we're ready for the interview I don't know if you've watched it but I know people that don't watch NBA basketball that love this show. And I just, I think it's, it's the best since uh, uh, White Shadow was on. Uh, I, it's been 30, <laughs> oh, I remember years. that. I don't think there's been another basketball series that I've liked as much as this. Um, I have watched it. Um, it's compelling as heck. Um, I, I don't, I don't always know, you know, where the reality and where the non-reality lines are. Um, but but it's it's hard to, to watch that show and not be enthralled by it. Um, uh, and it's uh, um, so yes, I, I've definitely enjoyed it. But um, um, but you know, I, I think it's like any other show. It's uh, there's a lot of drama to it too. And um, I think separating it and not accepting it as all 100 percent things that have happened is probably the best way to watch it. But I think the one good thing about it is to get to my next question is. It, it highlights the legacy of some of these great players that played in the league. I mean, I know there was something, uh, I just, we saw hustle about Julius Irving, and this brought about Julius Irving. I mean, there's been all these great players that have played in the league. The league is such a rich history of tremendous talent. And I, I, when JJ, I didn't like the JJ Reddick comment when he goes, oh, well, Bob Cousy played in a league of just plumbers, electricians, and things like that, which is ridiculous. And, and I, I think that's where you want to get back to. I know the league has tried to, you guys have done a great job giving the tro- you're naming trophies out after different players like Cousy and West and doing those things. But it just seems to be that you have such a rich tradition of all these great players. It, it would be great to have, you know, harken back to those days and, and let people, the new people who are just, you know, an eight-year-old that's starting the game to, to read about Dr. J and Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm really excited about what we've been doing with the trophies. And, and I, you know, I, I think recognizing these pioneer players uh, is super important. And, um, you know, my guess is, listen, you know, doing a live radio show, like you say things sometimes that you probably would, would like to take back or didn't say it exactly the way you wanted to say it. That that would be my guess on what happened there. I mean, I, I think he was trying to make a point um, about the greatness of, of some players in this era and then, you know, sort of went a little too far when talking about the guys against Cousy, uh, played against Cousy. Um, listen, I thought Draymond said it really well on Twitter the other day. I, I don't know why we always try to compare eras. Like the games are so different. You know, the idea of, you know, like the Bulls and the, the you know, from the nineties and the Warriors in 2000s. I mean, you know, the Bulls didn't even use the three point shot all that much. Right. Like, I mean, it's certainly compared to now, now, you know, the three point shot is used so heavily. And so comparing eras is always hard. And then, but when you're doing it, you have to be careful not to actually act like a, pre- a previous era was so um, 
was so inferior. I mean, the reality is, of course, the athletes are better now. Of course, they shoot it better now. Like, that's all part of the development of the sport, and that, that's going to happen. But that doesn't mean the guys that were playing back then uh, weren't super talented and, and had greatness at their time, too. And I, and I think uh, having a respectful conversation about those eras is better than, you know, making grant, you know some big uh, generalizations like were made there. Yeah, I think the league is doing an awesome job of doing that and bringing back these stars. I mean, I look, I'm older, I'm, you know, I, I, so I know some of these players, but I, I just, I find it really cool. As I said, that hustle movie that came out, um, you know, they highlighted uh, Dr. J and it was a big mm-hmm. role in that. And uh, a lot of kids I know were like, wow, I don't know, you know, they start watching his dunks and they're like, wow, that's amazing. You know, those things. <laughs> so I think that's cool. I think it's great because you have such a rich history of so many great players. It's great to bring them to life like that. Yeah, I mean, when when our people here came up with the idea on the trophies, I was so supportive of it because we have so many great players and and, and we had honored a few already, you know, um, you know, Kobe with the All-Star MVP, Bill Russell with the Finals MVP. Um, but you know, we added Kuzi and Robertson and Larry Bird and Magic um into the conference finals mix and and you know, we got some more fun stuff coming up in the fall. So, uh, so like really it, it is a major focus on us to, to really recognize our, our past ambassadors of the game. And, and, and we're going to continue to do that. That's, that's super important to everybody that works here. Well, I re- really appreciate you taking some time out talking about the NBA. We were talking to Tim Frank, who's the senior vice president of league operations, communications. You've been at this job. How long have you been at this job at the league right now? This will be oh boy! This will be my twenty second season this year and my twenty ninth overall, counting my days at the Rockets. So, so been a long been a long road, that's for sure. <laughs> that's great. That's amazing. So, but I I can't wait for the season to start. I'm I'm doing my fantasy football, getting ready for fantasy football, and I every time the roto sites come on, I just like every now and then I'm like start looking at basketball too, like it's because it's going to be in a few months too, and I'm like so excited for the season. I really we, I started this interview saying. I just you can you can almost be at uh, so uh, how many franchises I would say almost like twenty five franchises all are super excited for next year and there's some franchises like even Detroit that has this great young talent that's like oh we're not going to win a title but boy I want to see how all this great young talent plays so I think that's really what's going to be so exciting about this next I'm I am pumped for this next year at the NBA. So I am too. I mean, we were talking about it yesterday. I mean, it's funny you mentioned it. Detroit was exactly who we were talking about. Like, how much fun are they going to be? You know, seeing Jaden Ivey, Cade Cunningham. I mean, this is going to be a, a super fun group. Like, um, you know, Sadiq Bay did really well there last year. Um, you know, it's it's going to be – it's uh, they're the type of team we're going to see now. Can they take those next steps to, to create themselves into a contender? But – but like, but when you know, when you're talking about a team that was in the lottery, is something you're really looking forward to. Those are really positive things. So, thanks a lot, Tim. I really appreciate it again. Hope to have you on next year in the summer, so we can talk a little about the NBA. I know it's so hard to get a hold of you during the season, but I tell you, I'm really fortunate that we get to hear in in July and August to be able to talk about the NBA. Uh, anytime, Ira. It's always good to catch up. Really fun stuff there with Tim Frank from the NBA front office. Uh, amazing interview, an amazing guy. And I, we've only got about two minutes here, but not exactly a household name winning in golf at the Wyndham. Yeah, Tom Kim. 
He's 20 years old. He's the second youngest winner on the tour since Jordan Spees was 19. And he needed to win because it, uh, it got him his tour card. It also got him into the FedEx playoffs, which start this week at, in Memphis, the St. Jude Classic. It made him into the top 125. And uh, Ricky Fowler <laughs> finished. It was weird because everyone's trying to, to get in those positions at top 125. Fowler's is at 125. He just got in. Justin Lauer missed a six-foot par putt that would have not only put him in the FedEx playoffs, but it was short of a tour card next year, but he missed it, so he's not in the playoffs and probably is not going to be in a tour card. Uh, let's see what else exciting at the tournament was at Wyndham. Uh, Wolves Alatoris fired his caddy in the middle of the tournament. <laughs> you know, the caddy would let him to eight top ten finishes the year, $6.6 million, and he uh, and he got rid of him after Friday's round. Uh, and uh, so we're set now you know, for golf. It's Fleetwood and Berger not playing in the FedEx for the first uh, tournament. But St. Jude's Memphis, it's 125, then it gets cut to, I think it's 80 for the Delaware, the next tournament, BMW, and then the Tour Championships in Atlanta the following week. There's three more weeks left of, of the uh, PGA Tour. And what's going on with Liv? I know that lawyers are involved. Well, the lawyers are involved, and people are misrepresenting what just went on. There's two aspects. Tyler Gooch, Gooch and Matt Jones, they're suing because they want a right to play in the FedEx playoffs. They had enough points. They think they should have a right to play. I think their case is uh, the PJ Tour has every right to do whatever they want. They don't want someone to play. They don't have to play. But what these, the, the other lawsuit was about was about the major championships, the world ranking points, the sponsors. The PJ Tour has every right to say who can play on their tour. But you have the right to go tell someone else they can't do is be in, putting pressure on other people. I, I equate this to like the apps. You know, like an Apple can say, Apple goes to another, uh, you know, Google or another company and says, Android, so you're, you know, you can't create an app for that company or you won't be on our Apple. So they have no right to force that. And that's what happened in USFL and the NFL when teams were saying, well, you can't play in a pro football stadium that we play in. We're not going to let you do that. That's the pressure that the PGA Tour has done is they've sort of put pressure on the major championships, put pressure and, uh, and, and overt pressure. It, everything could be under the, you know, people could talk about it. Like if Ira came up with an Ira monster, uh, Ira drink, and uh, I want to sell it somewhere, and Coke tells this uh, convenience store, don't sell the Ira monster drink pretty overtly like that, then that's antitrust violation, and that's where the PGA Tour could be in trouble with that. So um, it's, it'll be interesting where that plays out, but I do think the PGA Tour is in trouble because of what Jay Mona has been saying, is you can't really put these pressure on these other... You can say, no, you can't play on our tour, but to put pressure on other entities saying you cannot accept live golfers, I think that's, that's where the antitrust violation is coming to play. Yeah, and let's wrap it up with a little racing. Well, Michigan, Kevin Harvick won. He had a 65, headed a 65 race drought. It's his sixth victory at the track. He's, uh, uh, this is with now with only three races to go. Remember, if you have to win a race, you're in for the playoffs. Now that's 15 winners. So there was three races. You could technically have 17 or 18 drivers in, and but they only take the top 16, so some people would be out. But it assures Harvick, who's one of the greatest racing drivers ever, and has been just not having won in the last year and a half, but to have him into the playoffs. And there's still some big names like Martin Truex and Ryan Blaney who are in top 10 in points but haven't won yet. So a lot of pressure on the next three races, Richmond, Watkins Glen, and Daytona to get in. And uh, next week uh, we're going to have on our show uh, Kyle Petty. Well, actually, in two weeks, Kyle Petty yeah, is going to be on our show. Kyle Petty is the former son of is, – is the son of Richard Petty, the, the king of racing. Kyle Petty, for his own, had a great NASCAR career running almost 900 races. But he just had a book out. And it was a great book, which I read this weekend. And I'm 
really pumped to have Kyle on the show to talk about NASCAR and talk about everything about uh, about his years in racing. We are out of time. Thanks so much to Tim Frank for coming on. He's Ira Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Iron Sports.